Good morning. I'm glad to be home and uh, I was thinking a lot about the men who, who filled in while I was gone and all the people who uh, taught class and, and preached and um, I appreciate it especially last Sunday coming home and you're a little spacey after changing so many time zones and I appreciate the, uh, the way that the elders get people to fill in and give me that Sunday to get my feet back underneath me. Um, tonight is the mission report. Uh, Depending on how you feel about that, I, you're either invited or warned. You can take that however you, however you want. A um, couple of things I always remind you of. You know, you, you, you sent your preacher, you sent your money, and you sent your prayers. And so really the, the attempt tonight is to tell you what you accomplished as a congregation. Uh, not just to say this is, this is what I did. Um, you know that my kids, if you've been here for any length of time, you know my kids like to set out all the knickknacks and doodads that people have given me over the years. Uh, there's always a table with some new stuff. The, the brothers and sisters over there always make something that they want to send back as a gift. If you don't have any interest in that stuff, please just walk right past it. But uh, it's good, I think, for, for young and old, old people who like to touch things and see things and, and uh, experience some of that culture and understand what it's like over there. Uh, one of the things I, I never get used to in India is the beggars. At any intersection, you know, I saw a crazy thing. The electricity went out the other day, the power went out, and one of the major intersections here in the Atascacita area, the, the lights were down and traffic really got snarled. I saw this intersection in India where it was three, three heavy lanes of traffic going in two different directions, and there was a point where they crossed each other. No light, no stop signs, no traffic cop, just every man for himself. That's the way it was designed. And, and watching those people try to, to, to intersect with each other. But, but at almost every major intersection, you're, you're going to find beggars. You're going to find people with their hand out, tapping on the door, children, uh, mothers with babies, uh, families, whole families out there begging together. And, and what do we do when someone comes up to our door and wants something? If you don't want to give to them, what do you make sure that you don't do? Don't make eye contact. Don't look, because if you look, you're going to create an expectation. When you make eye contact, people think, oh, I'm going to get something. And in this Acts chapter 6, you see that very thing. Here's a man who's been lame from birth, and he's carried up to the gate every day so that he might ask alms of the people entering the temple. And as Peter and John are about to go into the temple in verse 3, he asks them for alms. And when Peter looks at him and John looks at him and even speaks to him and says, look at us, you can imagine his anticipation. I'm going to get something. And the Bible even tells us that, that he fixes his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And we're going to study this morning and, and see in Scripture that what he wanted and what he got were two very different things. And that what he wanted was not anywhere close to the value of what he got. And why in the religious world today we need to be careful that we're not settling for what he wanted instead of what God is offering to us as well. He wanted money. That, that's obvious. He wanted some money. When you're poor and you're lame and you have no way to support yourself, you just hold your hand out hoping to get something. The Bible tells us about his weakness. That's what he had. He, he had weakness. He was lame from birth, lame from his, his mother's womb. Do you know, I have a friend who gave birth to a little boy and his feet were backwards when he was born. Can you imagine that? Getting this newborn baby and you hold it up and instead of the feet pointing toward you, they're pointing away completely backwards. Well, they, they fixed him. 
you know, they, they, they broke the bones and turned them around and reset them and, and, and made them correct. And it was funny, when he was in high school, he won a track meet, one of the fastest kids in school. Because that's what we do in the United States. When someone has a physical abnormality, as long as the, the medical care is there, they get fixed. It's not true in India. I was preaching one morning at a congregation about uh, the uh, master inviting people to a banquet and saying, go out to the highways and the hedges. Go out to the ditches and, and bring in the, the blind and the lame and the, and, the, and the poor. And right after I finished preaching that, I went downstairs and got in the car to drive away and the beggars had gathered outside the church building to ask alms of the people coming out. Because they knew religious people gathered there and so they were waiting and, and I saw a man down on the ground and, and he had about half of this leg and the bone was protruding there and was kind of crudely wrapped. A piece of his leg, chunk of his leg was missing. And then across from him was a woman. And I see, I don't, I don't know what this is in India or what causes this, but occasionally you'll see people and they walk on all fours. Uh, almost like an, like an animal. And, and the, the hips are high in the air and they walk on all fours and can't, can't stand up straight. And the, the palms of their hands are leathery like, uh, like the, the, the soles of their feet. And, and they walk around and, and come up. It, it almost doesn't look human to, to see someone with that kind of... Uh, uh, physical abnormality. When we talk about being lame from birth and, and this man, you know, we, this is not just someone who can get a, a pair of crutches or a walker and get himself around. Here's a man that if he wants to get from point A to point B, how does he get there? People have to physically pick him up and carry him and set him down. This is the weakness in his life. And out of that weakness, verse 7 says, he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. You know what happens if, if you're a grown man and you haven't used your legs all your life? Have you ever seen what someone's legs look like after they haven't used them for, for a couple of decades? They're, they're atrophied. The muscle is gone. The meat of the leg is gone. The, the fat is gone. They're, I, I watched a, a lame man in India one time. He wanted to move from one place to another. And he picked up what looked like a bone. It was his leg. He picked it up and he put it on one shoulder. Picked the other one up and threw it over the back of his leg. And then walked on his hands to get across the street. But the legs were just worthless. The legs just hung there. There was nothing to him. And so you can imagine this man. He's never walked in his entire life. And he got strength. You think that was worth more than a few coins? To get strength in his ankles and his legs again? And he doesn't... You know, sometimes when you see people who claim to be faith healers, someone will get up out of a wheelchair and what will they do? What does this man do? He's never walked in his life. And they take him by the right hand and raise him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. There's no wobbling with this man. Out of his great weakness, he was given strength. What about us? What about us? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Hold your place there. We'll be back. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about a weakness that he had, a thorn in the flesh. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times, three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so the power of Christ may rest upon me. How weak is our weakness? Our spiritual weakness when Christ finds us when the condition we're in before we become Christians. How weak are we? We may like to think that we're strong. We may like to think that we're spiritually strong. But we have a spiritual weakness that needs Christ. You know, there, there are two things you can ask for when you have a problem. I want you to think about which one we do more often. When you have a problem, you can ask God one of two things. You can either say, God, make my problem go away. Or God, give me the strength to deal with my problem. Which one do we ask for? God, make my problem go away. Now, before you're too hard on yourself, the Apostle Paul did the same thing, didn't he? Lord, make my problem go away. And when it didn't go away, what did he do? He asked a second time, make my problem go away. And a third time, make my problem go away. What does God do with our weakness? He provides strength. My power is perfected in weakness. I am strong enough. My grace is sufficient for you. He gives us his strength. Uh, in Philippians chapter 4, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is talking about some of the difficulties that he's gone through in his life. You know, in other books, he talks about being shipwrecked, beaten times without number, often without food. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Did, did God take Paul's problems away? When he was in need, did he take them away? No, there was abundance, there was need, there was, there was good, there was bad, there was up, there was down. What had Paul learned? He had learned how to be strong in Jesus Christ. He had learned how to be content in whatever circumstance, in whatever situation, he found himself. And, and he found himself in some, some terrible situations. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Here's, here's Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Starting churches, strengthening people, making disciples. He's doing God's will. He's turned his life around. He's believed. He's repented. He's been immersed in Christ. He's doing everything he's supposed to be doing. And he's in such a bad situation that he's full of despair. He's utterly burdened. It's beyond his strength. He thinks he's under the sentence of death. And he says, oh, well, this is such bad luck. This is just such a random thing happening to me, right? What does it say? Was there purpose behind what Paul was going through? The Bible tells us this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. I hope that we could grow to a point in our faith, in our Christianity, where we could start to pray, Lord, give me the strength, give me your wisdom, give me your strength, give me your, your not, so that I can get through these things. Because that James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And we talked about this in the college class this morning. We think, you know, make this thing that's going to make me grow go away. 
Please, this thing that's going to mature me spiritually, make it go away. This thing that's going to keep me from being conceited, make it go away. And what does God say? No. No. My grace is sufficient. My power is perfected in weakness. He had weakness and he received strength. God offers us the same. Go back in, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 8. That's not all he got. Well, that would have been enough if he'd gotten strength in his legs. But he got something else. Look in verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. Walking and leaping and praising God. What changed for him? He received entrance instead of his place outside. Now, have you ever felt the effects of exclusion? Have you ever been outside the group? Have you ever been put outside? Or told you can't come in or you don't belong here or you don't have access? This is our place, not your place. You go over there. You know, in, in India, it's really heartbreaking sometimes because you'll see a, a young mom or someone and she'll have a little girl or a baby. And, and you think, you know, I've got some coins in my pocket and I could buy her some, some lunch. And they always say, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't give money right in front of these places of business. And I said, why not? And said, if, if you give money to this beggar, then she'll be back tomorrow. And not only will she be back, she will bring all of her friends. And she'll say, an American came here and gave me money. And said, you'll ruin that man's business. He, he won't be able to conduct business because nobody can get in there and, and come and go. And nobody will want to go where the beggars are. So if you draw all the beggars here, you will drive all of his customers away. Now, why is that? Do you like to be begged from? Do you enjoy that? When, when you see people with their hands up, do you, do you, are you drawn to that? Or are people repelled from that? People walk the other way. They cross the street. They get away from it. So we have a guy. Why isn't he inside the temple? Why isn't he walking around in the temple with his hand out asking people for money? Why is he sitting outside the gate? Because that's where beggars go. That's where the crippled go. That's where, that's where the, the undesirables go, right? You keep them outside. You put them outside, you move them outside. When a politician comes into town, what do they do with all the homeless people? They round them all up and they move them somewhere else. You don't want them there. Don't want the riffraff there. Don't want the, 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 the losers, the lousy. You don't want those people there. You want, to, you want to put them somewhere else. And so he's outside. Nobody takes him inside. His friends don't take him into the temple. They have him outside the temple. But now he goes in. Because he's okay. Now he can walk. Now he's not lame. Now he doesn't have to beg. Now he can go inside the temple and don't underestimate the impact of that. You know how important it was to be included in society to be able to go into the temple, to into the place of worship? Do you remember that some, even of the, the, the Pharisees, some of the leaders in the synagogue, they believed in Jesus, but they would not confess him because they didn't want to get thrown out? That entrance was critical to them. That being part of things, being included in things was critical. What about us? When we're outside of Christ, what about us? Ephesians chapter 2 Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 tells us this. Remember, speaking to those of us who are not Jews, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Look at those words. Separated, alienated, and strangers. What does that tell you? What was the description of those before Christ? You're outsiders. You're out there. You're not in here. You're not part of us. You're outside. You're out there. You're strangers. You're aliens. And then what was the result? You are without hope. Do you know why? Because there are only two sides to a door. There's a door right there behind us. There's two sides. There's inside and there's outside. What's the third side? There is no side. 
And when Jesus says, I'm the door, I'm the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the door, the sheep come in through me and find pasture. I'm the door. How many sides of Jesus Christ are there? Three? Two. In or out. You're inside of Christ or you're outside of Christ. You're, you're inside or you're outside. And for those of us who found ourselves outside, he says, remember that you were outside of Christ. You were without hope because there's nothing outside of Christ that will give you eternal life. But look what Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 says. For through him, speaking of Jesus, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What did you get when you became a Christian? You got access to the Father. You got entrance into the kingdom. You got th this entrance into the household of God. Chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Ephesians chapter 2, excuse me, verses 18 and 19. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. That household of God we read about in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. What is the household of God? 1 Timothy 3.15 says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is what? What does your Bible say? Which is the church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of the truth. What is the household of God? It's the church. It's the church. Now, I want you to think about this. He, he talks about you were outside, you were aliens, you were strangers, but through Jesus Christ, you were made part of the household of God. And now people say about the church, well, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. I'm just a Christian, just God and me and the two of us, and we're like this. But I don't want anything to do with the church. If you understand what the Bible says about the church, you might as well say, I do not want to be part of the household of God. Is that what you want? I do not want to be part of the household of God. I'm going to have a relationship with God, but I'm not going to be part of His household. That's a little strange, don't you think? To be in His family, but not part of His household? The Bible tells us clearly that the household of God is the church. Now let me, let me tell you before we leave this blessing that comes with being in Christ. Some of you here this morning are in the auditorium, but sitting outside the gate of the kingdom. And, and you may come, this man came daily and sat outside the gate. You may come weekly and sit outside the gate. Why? Why would you sit outside the gate? Why would you come and sit outside the gate of the temple? Why wouldn't you come into the temple? Why wouldn't you come into the family of God? Why wouldn't you become part of the household of God instead of sitting outside? You know, this, this man sitting outside, he probably heard the, the words and the singing and probably saw all the coming and going. And so he was kind of associated with temple worship, but he was never part of it. He was never inside. He was always on the outside. But when he was made well, what did he do? He went in. He got entrance. He belonged. He got to be part of what was going on inside the place of worship. The last thing he received that he was not expecting is in verses 9 and 10. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. He got a new story. He got a new story. They knew who he used to be. They looked at him and saw him. Hey, you're that guy who used to sit out. And now you're that guy who's up and walking around. And they were amazed by it. Because when we see people who get a new story, we're amazed by it. Is there anybody in here this morning who's got a new story? I know a lot of you do. 
I know a lot of you are not who you used to be. I know a lot of you who have a history, and if you go back and look in your history, if we would go back and interview your friends, we would find a very different history for you than who you are now. There was an obvious change in his life. He was a lame beggar, and now he's up and jumping around and praising God. You know, I had a friend one time who told me every three years he would get assigned and get sent to a new duty station. And he said, Kevin, you know, I really like it because after three years, you know everybody's garbage, and it's really good to move on. Do you know what? Over the years, I've learned to heartily disagree with them. I love people so much more after I know their garbage than before. And I don't mean that I love their garbage. I don't mean that I love what they've done wrong. I just mean that when you realize who someone is and what they've overcome, that you start to appreciate them more. You start to see the goodness in them. You start to see the struggle in them. And you can look at them and say, that's my brother in Christ. Not because he's so great, but because he has died to his old life. And the more you know about people and the more you can love them and appreciate them, and it's not just a facade, it's not just a mask that says, here's who I want you to think I am. It becomes, here's who I am compared to who I used to be. Sometimes we look at someone and we think, well, they haven't matured very much spiritually. Sometimes the problem is we don't know how far they've come. We only see where they are. We don't see where they've come from. They knew where this man had come from. Look, he was a beggar. He was a, a lame man. And now he's up walking, praising God. What about us? In Romans chapter 6, the Bible tells us this. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How do you get a new life in Christ? Do you pray yourself into a new life? Do you just ask God for a new life and He grants it to you? Or does the Bible teach us that if you want a new life, you've got to do something with the old life? Well, you don't stick it in your back pocket. You don't meld it with your new life. You don't drag it into the church. What do you do with it? The Bible says right here, verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with Him. We know that. That old self, that old history, that old lame beggar man was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. How are you set free from sin? You're set free from sin by dying. How do you die? Romans 6 tells you. Don't make it up. Don't listen to someone who tells you. Go to the Bible. How do you die to your sin? Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We died with Christ in baptism. We're raised to walk in newness of life. We have a new history. And in the church, we don't need to be embarrassed that we've got a history. We ought to be embarrassed if we haven't killed it. If we haven't put it to death. If we're dragging, dragging it along like some big corpse and saying, you know what? I'm trying to be a really good person and I'm hanging out around the church. And one of these days, I'll, I'll, I'll balance the scales. Stop it. The Bible says there's one remedy for that old life. You kill it. You don't drag it around. You don't rehabilitate it. You don't refurbish it. You just kill it. You bury it. You put it to death. And it does not come up with you. The Bible says we're raised to walk in newness of life. We, we live in this world that tells us that the greatest goal in life is stuff. Stick your hand out and have God put some stuff in your hand. Give me things. Give me a job. Give me money. Give me prosperity. When I hold my hand out, you fill it up, Lord. Enlarge my kingdom. Give me things. Just like this man who held his hand out and expected to get stuff. Now you tell me, is what they gave him better than what he was hoping for? Strength? 
an entrance and a new life? Was that better than some coins that he could feed himself for a day or two? For a short term? So let me ask you this. Apply the same thing to the world today. If someone gets up and tells you, hey, the greatest thing in life for you is to make it. To succeed, to be wealthy, to be prosperous. And God says, no, I have something better for you. I'm going to give you strength to overcome sin. Not your strength, my strength. I'm going to give you entrance into my household. God is not asking for a place in our lives. He's giving us a place in His. You can come into my household and I'm willing to give you a new life. I'm willing to bury your past and let it be over and done. And the Bible says, He will remember our sins no more. Done. Gone. Now, you're really going to let someone tell you that it's better for you just to get some money? Someone's going to get up and tell you that you're better off just getting a promotion, that that's what God has in store for you, that God just wants you to be happy and prosperous? When the Bible says God wants you to be holy and part of His household and forgiven? Can you imagine if that lame man had, 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 and Peter had said, look, we can make you walk and we can bring you into the temple and we can give you a new life? And he had said, no, 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 no. Can you just give me some money instead? You'd count that man a fool, wouldn't you? For passing up what was most valuable in exchange for what was least valuable. What will a man profit? We just sang this song. What will a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Nothing. So this morning we offer you an invitation. Nobody's going to write you a check this morning. Nobody's going to promise you a job. Nobody's going to promise you that you're going to get that promotion if you just pray in faith. But I'll tell you what we can tell you. We can tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came from heaven and gave up equality with God as something to be grasped. And He emptied Himself. He came, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you. So that you didn't have to die for your sins. So that you could put your old self to death in baptism and be raised to walk in newness of life. Because God wants you in His house. God wants you in His temple. God wants you forgiven and strong and healthy by the power of His might. God wants you with Him. If you're hanging out at the entrance of the temple, come in. Come in this morning. And we can help you if you'll come while we stand and sing.